0: Hi, I'm Tavi Gevinson, and you're listening to The Rookie Podcast. I thought we'd start today's episode by reading one of the lovely iTunes reviews that a rookie listener wrote. I cannot tell you how much we've been appreciating all the feedback these past few weeks, and I wanted to shout out the user Marianne f 13 for writing this note, which ended up also being a lovely piece of writing. She says, I have been a rookie reader from the start when I was 13 to 14 and a podcast fan for a long time. To have these two combined is a dream come true. I am currently 19 years old and I keep up with Rookie every week and I cannot believe the podcast is happening. I feel like a proud child and I'm so excited for what's next. I think I'm in the right track for life, but at the same time, I'm confused with what I'm doing and who I am. It's like I'm watching an experimental film that makes me feel dumb because I don't understand it right away. I'm excited to see where the Rookie podcast goes, and I'm happy I'll be able to hear from such amazing people on life and all its aspects. So much love. Isn't that experimental film analogy so good? Thank you, Marianne, for listening and for writing this, and to everyone for continuing to tune in and send us your thoughts. Today on the show, I talked to Olympian fencer Ibtihaj Muhammad about turning other people's doubt into your own motivation.
1: Well, I think it's uh, more important now than ever to remember to be yourself and to um, be proud of who you are.
0: And rookie contributor Dylan Tupper-Rupert gives us an intro to astrology. And I got into it to figure out why I'm so cuckoo. But first, author and grown man George Saunders answers one of your questions. For this week's Ask a Grown, we turn to New York Times bestselling author George Saunders. For the unacquainted, Saunders is one of the most acclaimed writers alive today. He's written many, many books of short stories and essays, and his new novel is called Lincoln in the Bardo. It's very good. He's also written for The New Yorker, Harper's, and GQ. I honestly love every type of writing he does. I have many favorites out of his stories and essays, but I was especially excited to have him on our show because in times in my life when I have felt particularly lost and like I need to occupy myself at every moment with something that could make all of this more bearable, I have searched his name in the podcast app and listened to every interview he's ever done. I find his worldview very illuminating and comforting. And when I'm done listening to him, I feel like I've briefly accessed that level of not giving a shit that allows you to live your life way more freely. Uh, So here on the Rookie podcast, I asked him one of your questions and he answered with that George Saunders wisdom that I kind of live for. Nina, who's 17, says, Hi, rookie. It feels like everyone around me has their own community and activities and interests while I struggle to find meaningful reasons to leave the house. Mm. Trying new things seems very daunting to me, especially when I don't know what I even want to try. How do I find things that interest me and fill up my time in a way that doesn't involve me being alone at home?
2: Oh, what a sweet question. Yeah,
0: yeah. and then she wrote XOXO.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> let me start with XOXO right back. I, I think actually, you know, this person is very self-aware. She knows her... Herself, she knows her strengths and weaknesses. So, uh, if I were in a position to advise her, I would just kind of say, "Yeah, you you know, you know what your what the um, issue is." And my guess is, you know what the solution is. You know, and Mm -hmm. and also maybe the idea that if you kind of are that articulate and self aware, then in a certain way, the best advice is just to kind of cross your arms and look at her with one eyebrow up, like, "Yeah," and Uh you know, (laughs) so so it sounds like it's a very tiny thing that she wants to do that she doesn't know yet. And, and if I was her, you know, friend, I would just say, yeah, wh- well, you know, what what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And I, I think she knows already, probably, it seems like. yeah. Also, I have to say, parenthetically, I have two daughters and a wife, and I am so averse to mansplaining that I, this advice <laughs> thing gives me a little bit of, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know. I don't oh, know. no, it's it yeah. doesn't
0: come off that way at all.
2: No, I feel like a lot of... of uh, my whole approach to teaching and, and, and to characters is uh, Mary Carr said it once. She said, your, your attitude seems to be just let them do what they want. And I'm like, Yeah, because people will burn through stuff if you don't bother them too much. You know? Yeah. They will. They, I mean, because nobody, like the fact that she would ask that question indicates a restless spirit. She's not going to stay in that state for another two months. Right. She's, she won't. And if everybody just left her alone, she'd tumble her way right out of it.
0: Yeah. yeah. I always think about that, where like I kind of imagine the moment where like, One of our readers is like, what do I do? Well, I guess I'll write this email to a website in the hopes that, like, within a few months, someone will answer it. Right. And then – and I feel like I can't help but imagine that that's sort of, like, a tipping point. And then after they do it, they're like, all right. They, like, answer it for themselves somehow. You
2: you know what's similar? When I was uh, a younger writer, the way you sent a story out was you put it in an envelope and you dropped it in the U.S. mail. Mm -hmm. And so many times I've worked on a story obsessively. It's perfect put it in the envelope, drop it in the mailbox, and you go, oh, God, and you realize something on page 8 you should have fixed. So there might be something you know, in that, that process of uh, when, you, when you reach a conclusion, suddenly your mind goes, all right, now I'll give you the answer.
0: That was author and grown man George Saunders answering a question from Nina. If you want some advice, email your question to It at rookiemag.com. That's Y-O-U-A-S-K-E-D-I-T at rookiemag.com along with your first name or nickname, your age, and your location. And if you'd like to hear your voice on the Rookie Podcast, you can record yourself on your phone or computer, keep it to about a minute long, and email it to us at podcast at After this break, I interview Olympian fencer Ibtihaj Mohammed. Stay tuned. Ibtihaj Mohammed started fencing when she was 13 years old. Now she's on the U.S. Olympic team for saber fencing and took home a bronze medal at the 2016 Summer Olympics. She's the first Muslim-American woman to wear a hijab while competing at the Olympics, and last year she was invited to meet with President Obama alongside other prominent American Muslims to talk about concerns within the Muslim community. She also has her own clothing line called Luella that focuses on modest wear, including very cute dresses and jumpsuits. I talk to her about exceeding people's expectations and being your own cheerleader. I'm here with Ibtihaj Mohammed, Olympian fencer. What's up? Hi, Tavi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you?
1: So excited to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so excited you're here. We've had like artists and writers and I, like anything physical. The fact that you are an athlete, it's like the most mysterious to me. I am so in awe, um, and I guess I would start there with like, when you were younger, how did you choose fencing?
1: Yeah, so we've been, I mean, I've in particular been playing sports since I could remember, and in growing up, I was playing all these different sports. I played softball, I ran track, I played tennis, and for me, in each of these different sports, my parents always had to alter the uniform, because I'm Muslim. Uh, which for the women who observe hijab, um, which in Arabic literally means to cover, I cover everything with the exception of my face and my hands. So even when I was young, if I, even when I didn't wear a headscarf, I would still be modest in the way that I dressed. So I would spend a lot of time at these sporting goods stores, you know, uh, buying long jet or uh, like long sleeves to go underneath school uh, my I don't know volleyball uniform for example, or spandex to run track in, and that was always a pain. So. When I was 12, my mom and I were literally like driving and we kind of stumbled upon fencing. We were sitting at a stoplight in our town in Maplewood, New Jersey, where I live. And from the road, you could see into the high school and they have these like huge picture windows. um, And at the time, uh, the fencing team was practicing in the cafeteria. And so we see these athletes, they have on long white jackets and they have on long white pants and they have on what we thought were helmets. And uh, my mom's like, I don't know what that is, but I want you to try it when you get to high school. So that next fall, um, I think I was thirteen when I tried out for the fencing team my freshman year of high school. And that's kind of I always say that like I didn't really find fencing; fencing kind of found me, mm-hmm. because it just uniquely accommodated my religious beliefs, but also allowed me to you know be involved in sport, which I really enjoyed.
0: And what has kept you doing it all these years?
1: I would say what's kept me in fencing for this amount of time is really just my determination. I'm one of those people that when I see something, I have to have it. Like, I work really, really, really hard at whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, and with sport, I've always had these different goals that I've set for myself throughout my career, whether that be really short-term goals as a kid, um, you know, having a good practice or having a good local competition, a youth competition, um, or as I got older, you know, uh, going to a good university or doing well at NCAA, something like this. And I think um, the more and more I progressed in the sport and I kept setting new goals, at some point in my career, you know, Olympics was in there and I just worked really hard until I was able to achieve that.
0: Do you remember the inciting moment when the Olympics became a goal?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm not one of those people who had like, you know, my eye on the Olympics at a really young age, right? I always saw fencing as like a means to an end. So when I was really young, I wanted to go to a good university, and when I looked at the top ten schools in the country, um, fencing was like you know this. Uh, every single you know top ten school had a fencing team, so I was like, great! I want to go to a really good university. I'm one of five kids. I come from a large family, so I had to kind of get crafty with how I planned to pay for college. For me, it was always like uh, fencing served a purpose for me, and. Uh, even when I graduated from college, I went to Duke in North Carolina. When I graduated from college and I was looking for a job, um, I remember I was studying for the LSATs. I was looking for a job, and when I looked at Team USA, um, specifically the United States fencing team, there weren't very many people who looked like me. You know, um, African Americans or even people of color. And really, it was about making Team USA more diverse. That was my initial goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I made my first team um, in the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, I uh, I remember Olympic qualifiers uh, started for the 2012 games, and um, when those Olympic qualifiers ended, I didn't qualify for the Olympic team, and I was okay with that. You know, I had really just started getting my feet wet on the international scene, and uh, I remember. Um, it kind of broke the people around me that I didn't qualify for the team. Like my coach seemed kind of sad. Maybe my family seemed kind of sad. And for me, it was just, I always feel like things that are meant for me will never miss me. So I don't really get caught up on, like, you know, sad moments in my life or things that may seem in the moment a disappointment. I, can, mm-hmm. I kind of move on from them rather quickly because it's like, I don't have time to be sad, you know? For me, I was just like, you know, that Olympic team wasn't meant for me. I remember I was with a friend at the time and a little girl came to me and she asked me if, uh, I think she wanted an autograph, and she said, oh, are you the Olympic fencer? And before I could tell her that I wasn't an Olympian, my friend told her. She said, you know, she's not an Olympian. And I think it was in that moment that, I mean, it just really hurt to hear it from someone else, but um, I've never won an Olympic team more in my life. I wanted it not just for myself, um, but for, like, that little girl. I wanted it for my younger self. For all those times in my life I had been told that, you know, I don't belong or that, you know, um, I can't do something because I'm a girl or I can't do something, you know, or I shouldn't be doing something because I'm a Muslim or, you know, because I'm African American in the sport of fencing. So it really, I think, um, it became more of a mission for me to do it because I've been told in the past that it didn't belong or that I couldn't do it. And I think that's what motivated me to qualify for an Olympic team.
0: So you were talking about uh, doing all this while you were at school. You were a double Mm -hmm. major at Duke. How did you balance school with your passion? And do you have any advice to that end for someone who's feeling like they have to choose one over the other?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the awesome things that I think sport teaches especially young people is it teaches us time management so I think that my ability to manage my time really well um, in theory I manage my time well I, I say it comes from being an athlete for you know for so long and one of the hardest things especially in college for me was being a student athlete because you you want to have all that social time with all of your friends and I had to make a decision right I when when I was done with classes, I and I would go to practice. When I came home, um, I didn't really have time to, you know, spend with with friends. I had to use that small window when I finished practice at seven p.m. till like say I went to bed at midnight. I had to use that window to study or write papers and to prepare for like you know uh, midterms or finals or whatever. So I always I always found that in university, I it was like this juggling act, but I feel like my social life always took a hit. And um, I realized that when I was in school and I actually only fenced at Duke for three years. I didn't fence my senior year. And I would say that that was like one of the best decisions I made, (laughs) not to discourage people from uh, competing uh, all four years while they're in school, but I would say that this was just like this eye-opening experience for me. I studied abroad that year. Um, I I went to Morocco for uh, the summer semester. I discovered what it was like to have a social life and <laughs> like be able to find some balance. I think it's really important to find balance and not take on too much, right? Whether it's you know um, having like your friends, you're having your academics, and then you're having your athletics and kind of forgetting about yourself. I think that you have to find, like self-care is really important and I think it's important that you find um, time to balance all of those things. Okay, so like
0: I said, I'm in awe of athletes because I'm totally physically uh, incapable of uh, like anything other than uh, very light yoga. <laughs> and, um, but I do these types of work, like writing or stage acting, where so many people who have been mentoring me or like teachers or directors or like will be like, "Oh, well, you know how like an athlete, blah blah blah," and they talk about like turning your brain off. And just doing it, mm-hmm. and um, I guess <laughs> I want to know if like that actually happens. Like, does your brain actually turn off? Or are you just like in the moment w- while you are competing?
1: Yeah, I think I think so. Like, it, I remember at like say the Olympics, for example, um, I had one of my best performances in our team event. And we were we were fencing in the semifinals against Russia, the strongest team. They're world number one at the time, and um, we. I remember competing against them. I was, I think, uh, my last bout. We were down by at least ten points, and I just remember telling myself to just get one right. And if I think of it in 10, right? If I think being down 10 points, that can seem really overwhelming. So I was just thinking about getting one point, getting one point, And after a while, it just, I was knocking them off one after the other. Um, and really, like you said, it's you I'm turning off kind of that part of my mind that make Um, be thinking about that really large gap I have to fill or thinking about being anxious or nervous or afraid in that moment and really just remembering all the hard work that you put put in and letting those skill sets kind of just show for themselves and it, you, it feels like an outer body experience because you're just doing everything perfectly, but a lot of that has to do with training and the preparation that you've put into it. So I can't tell you exactly what I was thinking in that moment, because it feels like a total fog. Um, but like you said, you kind of just shut off certain parts so that you can perform to your best.
0: Ooh, I love getting this explained by a real athlete because I I had a director who would always be like, well, you know how like in golf or you know how like in tennis and I would be like, no. No. (laughs) You were the first American to wear a hijab while competing in the Olympics. Were you surprised by the amount of attention that you got for that?
1: Um, no, you know, uh, because I would say that any first, right? for any um, minority group or underserved group I think should be celebrated. We as a society have painted Muslims in not the best light, right? So for you know the Olympics to happen uh, during the height of this year's presidential election and to have a Muslim woman on Team USA that totally breaks every single stereotype that we ha- as a society have you know, depicted about Muslims, particularly Muslim women, being meek and docile and oppressed and Arab and everything else, you know. Muslims, in particular Muslim Americans, are so much more than, than most of us know. So to be able to um, really defy all of those labels just by being present on Team USA and being myself, not having to do anything, um, you know, not having to even fence just exist and show people that as an African-American woman who's Muslim, who wears hijab and was born in Maplewood, New Jersey, um, of American parents, I think, just challenges so much that people have created and boxed about Muslims in their mind for so long. I, for me, it was, it was really, I would say, in that moment, um, it just felt very empowering. After Donald Trump Uh, Called for a,
0: quote, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. You wrote a note about it on your Facebook page where you said, never let another person's misconceptions about your race, gender, or religion hinder you from reaching your goals. Um, And you have become very open about using your position to speak out against bigotry and Islamophobia. I would imagine, and feel free to disabuse me of this, Perception, but that there is pressure that comes with the visibility that you're talking about. And how did you make the decision to say something about it and and talk to your followers about it?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that this moment that we're living in, especially as like millennials and as young people, this moment that we're living in is, I would say, probably like, one of the toughest ever time. And I I keep, I tell like, uh, especially young people all the time, I'm like, this is not a drill. Like, this stuff is actually happening, right? And if I were to not use my platform to speak out against injustice, to speak out against things that not just affect things that, or not just to talk about things that directly affect me, but also talk about things that, that don't affect me, that may affect my neighbor, it may affect a friend, or it may affect someone that I don't know. I think that it's important for me to use my platform for good. And I've always said that, you know, when I think of my predecessors, like someone like Muhammad Ali, for example, I wasn't privy to all of the the work that he did outside of the boxing ring until after he passed away. We all know how amazing and prolific of a boxer Muhammad Ali was, but I think for young people in particular, we well no, I cannot I guess I should only speak for myself. I didn't know how amazing he was outside of the ring and I didn't see his in-depth interviews and all of the things that he spoke for and he spoke against until after he passed away to see a black man, you know in the 60s at the height of like the civil rights movement say that I'm willing to, you know, forego millions of dollars, right? I'm willing to go to prison to, You know, challenge the idea that black people are lesser than or that he is a Muslim is lesser than. I think that that is, I think that it was, it's just so impressive. And I always say that if ever given the opportunity to speak for someone um, and to speak up for someone, I'm always going to do that because there's far too many people that I can look to as sources of inspiration who have done so in far harder times than I think we'll ever have to experience. It feels like every day there's
0: another news item about this conversation. And what do you do for self-care in the midst of this like constant influx of discrimination?
1: Well, I think it's uh, more important now than ever to remember to be yourself and to um, be proud of who you are there are far too many you know um, people who are using I would say their positions of power to make minorities in particular to make women feel lesser than and to feel you know undervalued and that that's when I think we should be most proud to be ourselves and not be afraid to express it um, because uh, you know, I, th- I think that all the things that we see and that we hear that are meant to break us, if we allow them, they will and they'll, they'll affect us. And you have to be your... My mom has always said this uh, from the time I was young. My mom always says you have to be your own biggest cheerleader. And I, I try to live by that. You know, I don't need affirmation from anyone else. I don't need anyone else to tell me that I look good or that I sound good because if I don't believe it for myself, you know, I'm not going to be able to put my best foot forward. If I think of all those times in my career, particularly as an athlete, when I was told that I wouldn't make it, right, or that I wasn't any good or that I didn't belong, I wouldn't be where I am today if I, I, you know, adhered to what people had to say about me. I know that for myself, just Constantly telling myself um, and believing in myself that it can be great has allowed me to be successful. So,
0: Ooh, I want to plaster that on the walls of every school,
1: yeah, and like
0: every Instagram and wherever children are. <laughs> I
1: yeah. want them
0: to see that.
1: I mean, if you think about it, if we waited for like a lot of us rely on like say our moms, right, to tell us things that that we need to hear or things that, that, I don't know, to motivate us or to kind of get us going or to get us to believe in ourselves. And if you're using like a teacher or a friend or your mother or your father or something like that to always be your champion and to kind of rely on that voice, maybe that person that you rely on is going through something in their own life and they – what if that, and that, on that particular day when you need it most, they're going through something and they can't be there for you, right? And uh, to the capacity that you need them to be. So that's why I, I think that you have to be that person for yourself because you never know um, if that, I don't know, that kind of like rah rah spirit that you're used to hearing from a friend or from a colleague or from, you know, a family member is going to come through. So it's like, why not just do it for yourself? I don't, I, I, I genuinely feel like I don't need anyone else to tell me that I can be great I'm like I know that I can because I I, I know how hard I can work for things that I want
0: Ooh, my friend gave me a really good tip too um, she was like you know how like when you know someone who's pregnant you're like oh my god do whatever you need to do like you know go home or we'll order that or whatever she was like imagine that you're pregnant with you when you're older mm-hmm. and like you have to, like, uh, do what's best for, uh, for you because you're like baby you right now.
1: Oh, yeah. You all, I mean, yeah, it, this goes back to just, like, self-care. You have to do what's best for you. You have to think about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't take care of yourself, who's going to do it, mm. right?
0: Last year, President Obama invited you to join a discussion with prominent Muslim Americans about issues concerning the Muslim community. And what was it like talking with him? What did you talk about?
1: So, first of all, that was an amazing opportunity to be invited by President Obama and be at the table with so many movers and shakers within the Muslim community. And people who were, you know, there was, I think, like a surgeon at the table. There was an activist. There was an imam, um, like a religious leader. There were so many different people there who have different concerns. Um, But for me, I think what was most important was to thank the president for almost like his presence right um, I I truly believe that having an African American president right um, has done so much for so many people in the states that you really like it's almost like even hard for me to talk about because it it, it touches me in a way um, that you know to see someone be successful and uh against the odds in a sense, you know. Um, It was just really moving to me and also have President Obama like acknowledge me as an athlete and as a minority athlete, as a Muslim woman athlete Um, and especially in this time where it's almost like not politically correct for you to... uh, almost like acknowledge a Muslim in a positive way, right? Because when, when we think of Muslims, like there's so many different like bad labels attached to them and the way that we're, we're spoken about. So to have the president um, be willing to speak to the Muslim community and, and be an advocate for the Muslim community, uh, I thought was great. And whenever i given the time to sit with President Obama, I'm like all ears. I thought it was once in a lifetime experience for me. Ah, amazing. Yeah. What motivated you to start your clothing line, Luella? So, um, I founded Luella about three years ago. Uh, It's named after my grandmother, my dad's mom. And I was looking for a dress, like a long sleeve dress, right? A long sleeve floor length dress. And now I think it's becoming like a little bit easier to find this, but a few years ago it was just like the hardest thing ever. It was like finding a pink unicorn in the middle of the desert. <laughs> and I remember I was spending so much time overseas uh, or spending a lot of time shopping, online shopping and having these long sleeve floor link dresses shipped in from overseas. Mm-hmm as a sports ambassador uh, for the U- U.S. State Department, and I would go to these different events. I would always be speaking. I like to be modest when I'm speaking on stage, so I wear these long dresses I was finding. And um, I don't know, I was sh- online shopping, my brother's like, why are you like always looking for these dresses? He's like, why don't you just make them for yourself? And at the time, I thought he was kind of crazy. I'm like, I don't sew, but my brother, who lives in Los Angeles, knew of a manufacturer, so he was suggesting that you know, maybe I start to produce these dresses. So the next time I went out to LA, I took some sketches, I bought fabric, and I had these samples made. And that's kind of like organically how Luella was born. I and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun just to have, especially I would say, young girls who may who not only want to adhere to the tenets of their faith, right, who may want to dress modestly, but also want to be fashionable and express themselves through what they wear and not have the same struggles that I had as a kid. I remember being younger and and wanting to be fashionable but didn't want my clothing, like, super tight or didn't, um, you know, wanted to go to, like, the store and buy clothes like anyone would and always struggle with that. So being able to fill that void... Uh, especially for our youth, has been, I would say, most rewarding in starting this clothing company.
0: Oh, I love that. You just, like, see the gaps and then go off and fill them. Yeah. Like, (laughs) what you want, yeah. Thank you so
1: much, Ibtihaj, for coming in. Thank you, Tavi, for having me. I've had so much fun, and hopefully I can come back and we can chat again soon. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, what a champ, literally. That was my interview with Olympian fencer, Ibtihaj Mohammed. We'll be back with more after this break. Have you ever wanted to get into something but didn't know where to start because there are so many options and it feels overwhelming? Like a certain type of movie or a genre of music or a type of poetry? Well, we're hoping to make getting into something new a little easier with a segment we're calling Starter Pack. We'll have rookie contributors introduce us to something new by walking us through the best entry points. Today, we're going to have rookie contributor Dylan Tupper-Rupert introduce us to the best resources for getting into astrology. She interviews astrologers for our monthly horoscopes on RookieMag.com, so she knows a thing or two about this stuff. And as a Taurus myself, I have to say, I'm pretty... I actually don't know what um, being a Taurus means, so I'm just going to listen to Dylan.
3: Hey, rookies, it's Dylan Rupert. I do the new moon horoscopes every month with Amelia Quint, who is an astrologer. And she does the astrology. I do the tips. It's like we tag team it because I only got into astrology as a baby teen. I'm not like an official astrologer. And I got into it to figure out why I'm so cuckoo, basically. I spent a lot of time staring into walls thinking... Why am I this way? So astrology was really appealing, but getting into astrology is also really overwhelming. Like what is a rising sign? Who knows what that means? How would you even go about learning what Venus and Sagittarius and like Mars trines Pluto even means at all? Not only is it a whole new vocabulary, but it's also like geometry and math, as well as all these subjective ancient interpretations from like, ancient Mesopotamian history. It's a whole mess of new info. As an amateur myself, I've always let books be my guide. And there are a lot of really great introductory resources that I've used myself over the years and turned back to. But for now, to get a good foundation for understanding it all, we start with getting the fundamentals, which also includes how to learn about yourself. So maybe you can stare at a wall for a little less time during the day because you might get some answers. The first resource that I recommend is a downloadable PDF called Elemental Astrology and it's by Amelia Quint who's our astrologer at Rookie. Shout out. Her website is themidheaven.com. So go to her website and check out this downloadable PDF where she runs through basically all of the fundamental aspects of astrology. Just like her writing on Rookie it's really congenial and conversational and it's a really easy to digest guide with short and split explanations. Amelia also includes worksheets after every chapter, so you can take notes on what's catching your attention, what's inspiring you, what you want to learn more about. It's like the most fun study session ever. If you just want a crash course of the basics, check out modules one to four, and then save five for when you feel ready to tackle your birth chart, because that's like a lot of information. You might want to like take a break. Resource number two is a book called The Only Astrology Book You'll Ever Need by Joanna Martine Woolfolk. It's a really ubiquitous book. There's been a copy at basically every used bookstore I've ever been to, so you can find a good old trusty like six dollar copy i'm sure this book will define what houses are what the planets mean and what the signs are like but the thing that i recommend the most about it is that they have plenty of information on how to build your own chart what you can build your own chart who knew if you're wondering what's a birth chart it's also sometimes called a natal chart, not to further confuse you, but it's like that wheel diagram with a bunch of cryptic symbols and lines that tells you everything you need to know about your cosmic makeup, but it's pretty impossible to read until you do further study. So that's why it's great to make your own. It's a really good exercise for learning about how the houses and the signs and the planets work visually. Like, I'm a visual person and diagrams are my jam. So doing my own chart made it so much more clear. I'm so sorry for that joke. <laughs> you won't get all of the info at first because it's this big Bible, but it's a really good book to take on astrology piece by piece, chapter by chapter. And did I mention I love diagrams? Cause there's like a lot of diagrams. <laughs> Resource number three is a total classic. It's Linda Goodman's Sun Signs. If you just want to read one book and be done, like you just want basic, basic astrology, This is probably your guy. It explains the traits of each sun sign, which, for those of you who don't know, it's the sign you answer to when someone's like, hey, what's your sign? So you can read this book and be like, I get what a Gemini is, or I know, like, I can understand memes about Virgos now. It's a really good and fundamental place to start in understanding the archetypes of astrology. It's also my favorite book to read with friends at the beach, because you can be like, Oh, my God, Betsy, you're such a Sagittarius. Look what it says here. And everyone needs a book like that in their life. Resource number four is a website. It's CafeAstrology.com. But what it is, is a great place online to explore even more about astrology. They have a lot of articles. And to learn about yourself through reading the astrology books I mentioned before, You'll want a copy of your birth chart to interpret. And if you're not ready to make yours, you can get one online here for free. So save like a screen cap of it to your desktop and to your camera roll. So as you're going through these books, you can look up, you know, oh my, uh, my, uh, you know, uh, Mars is in Gemini and whatnot. You can use your birth chart to look it up. Um, you probably won't understand any of it at first, but your studies from all your other reading will help you analyze it. I also got for you, because you're so special and I'm so nice, some bonus resources. They're online. They're just my favorite online horoscopes. So a few of my faves. One of them is AstroStyle, which is just astrostyle.com. These are kind of like the gateway scopes. If you're used to reading the back page newspaper, or more like commercial women's magazines horoscopes, you'll probably appreciate their fun tone that definitely carries through, but they're way more in depth, they're super smart, they're feminist minded, they're fun. They're like an upgrade on that kind of genre. Chani Nicholas, who's also at Chani, C-H-A-N-I, Nicholas, N-I-C-O-L-A-S.com, She is basically a shining light with a heart for social justice and her weekly horoscopes are more like meditations than predictions, which is kind of what astrology is for anyway. So hers are probably different than what you might expect, but they're just really beautiful and sometimes will like make you cry if you're ready for that. astrology by mecca she also has some really great monthlies that are always on the nose they're really detailed they're quick to read you can find her at mylifecreated.com and annabelle gatt who is at broadly is really awesome she has no nonsense precise fun to read daily weekly monthly you name it So those were a few of my favorite places to start with understanding the crazy universe of astrology, which is just the crazy universe. (laughs) So you can take all this info and be a novice and just have, you know, a lot of really awesome information to turn back to over time. You could also take all this info and become like a cosmic wizard who wears a pointy hat and a cape every day and only answers people in cryptic mystical answers and seems to hold some powers of the universe. Um, you totally don't have to take this that far, but if you do, just like credit me and the starter pack, that would that would be nice. Um, but in any case, no matter how far you get with your astrology studies, you can always read and understand our new moon horoscopes at rookiemag.com every month at the new moon. Wolf howls in the distance.
0: That was rookie contributor Dylan Tupper-Rupert bringing us our first starter pack, a guide on where to start if you're getting interested in astrology. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll hear my interview with Winona Ryder. I remember
3: the audition. I, I remember saying to them, like, you don't have to pay me. I don't care if it even comes out. I had
0: just I want to say these words. That was the first and only podcast interview she's given. You will want to hear it. I had butterflies the whole time. So I'll see you then. I'm your host, Tavi Kevinson. If you liked the rookie podcast please give us a rating and review the show on itunes we want to know what you think as we're bringing you more weekly episodes and if you've done all the tweeting gramming reviewing rating and still want some way to support this amazing show just sneak into your school office and play this over the morning announcements with permission of course good morning class this is a mandatory request that you ditch your homeroom right now to listen to the rookie podcast Totally kidding, stay in school, don't ditch class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can find us at rookiemag.com, rookie.mtv.com, and at rookie mag on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram as at Taviitool, T-A-V-I-T-U-L-L-E. Plus check out podcasts.mtv.com and at mtv podcasts on Twitter and Instagram for more shows from the MTV Podcast Network. This episode of Rookie was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, Kesha Mihailovich, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network. Special thanks to Lauren Redding and Lena Singer for selecting the reader questions for Ask a Grown. And thank you to Hattie Stewart for the Rookie logo design, Beth Holko for the jewels, and to Maria Inez Gold for the doodles
1: and portrait of Tavi. You can see their beautiful work on the Rookie Podcast page in iTunes.